Welcome to the Counter Narrative Podcast, a show designed to change the way we talk and think about education. By sharing stories of successes and triumphs, we aim to challenge the dominant narrative that often negatively portrays our disenfranchised populations. I'm your host, Charles Williams, an urban educator for more than 15 years, a current school principal in Chicago, an educational consultant, an equity advocate, and the co-host of Inside the Principal's Office. Let's get started. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get on to the episode. This episode is a pause to ponder segment. These bi-weekly sessions will allow me to share with you my personal thoughts and reflections on a wide spectrum of topics as they relate to education. It is my hope that you will be able to take something from these segments and apply it in a meaningful way as you continue to do amazing work. Remember, while we all have different roles, we all have a single job, educating our students. So as I promised before, these Pause to Ponder episodes, at least this set of four, will continue to investigate a book that I'm reading as part of a novel study or a book club uh, with my staff. Uh, And this one is Finding Your Blind Spots by Hedrick Nichols. And after the last episode, I actually reached out to Hedrick, said, first of all, please make sure that you listen to it. I want to know your thoughts and your feedback. And she gave me her blessing to continue moving forward. So I'm going to do my best to continue doing right by my good friend as well as her amazing text. If this is the first time that you're listening to this, you do not need to listen to them in order. Feel free to listen to this one and then jump back, take a listen to the other one. And of course, when you have an opportunity, pop over to Amazon or to Solution Tree and pick up a copy of Finding Your Blind Spots. You'll thank me later. So these two chapters, chapters three and four, began to examine bias in two different spaces of labels, the language that we use to describe one another and spaces, events, things like that, as well as the bias that creeps up within our curriculum. And I think one of the pieces that I love the most, again, about these two chapters is it just really forces you to engage in deep reflection and considerations as you're reading. And as usual with Hedrick, there are some gems that you can take away, aha moments, uh, labels for things that we didn't know before. So one of the first things that, that stand out and that I want to share is that we often talk about student-centered classrooms, right? How do we focus the learning around the students in our space? And in this chapter, she mentioned student-first language. And I want you to think about this for a moment. Think about the students within your building, within your space, within your organization, your classroom, whatever it may be. Think about them for a minute. 
And if I were to ask you, tell me the different groups that you have in that space, the different student groups, and you begin to name them, list them, check them off in your head mentally, I'm curious, what words are you using to describe them? So often we say things like, well, our bilingual students or our diverse learner students. And there's a problem because we are putting that adjective before the student and making it about, well, whether we realize it or not, subconsciously, that that label is more important than the student themselves. Right? Think about that. If you were to describe someone in your building, how would you describe them? Are those aspects that we often associate, race, ability, gender, are they necessary? Right? Do we have to say that, you know, special ed teacher, or can we just simply say, well, that's Mrs. So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so, right? Considering the language that we use, and I say this because so often we utilize language without ever really stopping to think about it. Where did it come from? Maybe it was something that we've always heard and just simply used. As part of our book club study, I ask staff to engage in reflections and to share. And so for this chapter, one of the things that I shared, again, me being transparent and vulnerable in this space with all of you, is that growing up, a family member would have us driving around town and he would point out different vehicles. And he would label these vehicles as gook cars. Yeah. Yeah. If you're listening to this, you probably cringed just now. If, if you understand the, the negative connotations with, with, with this word, right? Because gook often referred to, especially during, you know, the, like the, the Vietnam War, the Korean War, the, the people from Asian descent. And so he, this staff member, I'm sorry, this family member of mine, as we would drive around, would point out different vehicles, right? And I recall trying to identify, trying to figure out, well, what made a gook car a gook car? And that's how I would call them. And I felt horrible as I began to get older and understand that essentially, right, I was out there using this highly offensive, highly derogatory term to simply identify a vehicle that was manufactured in Japan as opposed to being built here in America. But I didn't know any better. That was something that I was brought up with. That was the language that I was using. And of course, yes, that's an extreme example. But consider the labels that we use. Consider the way that we identify the people in our spaces and, and the connotations that are associated with that. Right within our group today, we talked about like names and and and, and different ethnicities, and the immediacy of the, the 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 prejudices that occur. Right when we see a certain name or the way that a certain what that uh, the way a person speaks, we we automatically have certain assumptions about them. One of the other pieces in in this book talked about uh, the 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 curriculum within our class. Now, this one really hit home for me because like Hedrick in the beginning of this chapter talked about how she wanted a Confederate flag because she didn't know any better. And she wasn't three. She wasn't, you know, seven. She wasn't 10. She was in high school. And it was a reflection of the fact that this was a piece of history that she never, ever learned. And I could relate to that. 
How many times have our histories been erased from us? How many times have we been taught and received an education, a history that does not mirror our own personal experiences or the people from our community, from our ancestral line? And we are brought up with a very skewed and oftentimes self-damaging perception and understanding of the world in which we live. Right. One of the pieces, and I and Hedrick, if you're listening to this, I appreciate this. I'm a huge fan of classical music. Not exactly sure how that happened, but I am. And as I've begun this journey, I've struggled with the fact that I have not been able to identify or find individuals of color who composed classical music. I, I assume there must be someone, right? That was an entire period of time in which this music was being developed. And you cannot tell me that the only individuals who ever picked up the instruments to play said music were Caucasian males. There's no way. Hedrick, fortunately, provided several names uh, of different individuals of colors. And so I, I'm definitely going to jump in and try to, to find their music. But it talked about this idea that oftentimes within our curriculum, how centralized it is around this, uh, around Europe and around males, right? In short, white male contributions. In fact, tying these two chapters together, these ideas of labels and curriculum, and I even tweeted this one out today. So if you saw that, you'll, you'll, you'll understand where I'm coming from. But this idea of using phrases like black history. Right now, we're in the middle of Hispanic Heritage or Hispanic History Month, right? Asian American History Month. We we designate certain times of the year to say, this is Black History Month. Well, why does it have to be quantified with, with some phrase, Black History or Hispanic History or Asian American History? Why can't that simply be history? Because what we're saying in these spaces is that the idea then that white history or this Eurocentric history becomes the standard, it becomes the norm, and thus everything else becomes a substandard. In fact, I loved it in the chapter where Hedrick points out that we are a nation of immigrants, and yet we often say things like Mexican-American, African-American, Asian-American. But when is the last time you heard someone say, well, that's German-American or Irish-American. Again, there's this unspoken ideology that this, this, this Caucasian Eurocentric uh, stance is a standard and everything else becomes an other. And imagine the students who are sitting in that space to say, well, I'm an other, right? We're an afterthought. We, we are a sub-bullet on this outline of this chapter, right? There's history, and then there's African-American history, and then there's Asian-American history. Imagine what that can feel like to the students in your space. And so Hedrick implores us to dive into these conversations and to, to explore with a very simple question, and I love this question, is, who else was there? Think about that for a second. As we're studying history, as we're studying points in our history, more often not those, those very, very common and popular points, what else was happening? 
during that time? Who else was there and what can their perspectives, what can their stories tell and how can that really flush out the reality of the situation? And I caution some of my more radical teachers that we're not saying that we're going in guns blazing to, to really change attitudes and opinions and beliefs around some of the centralized characters within our textbooks. But instead, it is our job as educators to fill in the gaps, right? I love this idea in the book to fill in the gaps without judgment. Yes, we have some forefathers, the founding fathers of this country, who did some amazing things. And yes, they also have a very, very dark side to their history, right? I was just listening to a podcast not too long ago, listening to how George Washington spent his dying days hunting down a slave and the fact that his granddaughter or great-granddaughter, forgive me, I don't remember exactly which one, ended up marrying Robert E. Lee. Yeah, like that Robert E. Lee. These are, the, these are other aspects, the reality. I'm not telling you what to think or how to feel, but it's important that just as we highlight and just as we cover different aspects of, the, uh, of individuals, of, of events within history, that we do so comprehensively and allow the students in our space to make up their own decisions. And yet we can see across this country that that is a battle that is being waged where those stories, those, those narratives are not really allowed to come to the surface, not allowed to come to light. And there's a question as to why. In fact, one of the reflection questions for chapter four and one of the questions that we dove into in our group asked that exact question. By engaging in this work, are we bringing people together? Or are we widening the gap? I'm curious. What do you think? Let me know. Until next time. I want to thank you for listening to the Counter Narrative Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to like, subscribe, and of course, share it with friends and family. I'd also love to hear your thoughts about the show, so please leave a comment or two as well. Now, I'm not sure what platform you're using, but the show can be found on Anchor, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, and plenty of other platforms. If the show isn't on your preferred site, let me know and I'll be sure to get it up and running. This podcast is also featured on schoolrubric.com, where you can find educational articles, videos, and interviews with educators from around the globe. Be sure to connect with me and other listeners by following the show on Twitter at The CN Podcast and joining the show's Facebook group. Take care. <laughs>